This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. to her, whatever it is, her vitality on top of everything else that's brought her to um, speak with us, speak to us and with us today. I also want to thank our sponsors, the Committee on Japanese Studies, International Studies, the Human Rights Program, and always um, Lauren Sutney, Maureen Lachanane, and Diane Yurko for helping us physically get to this space. Um, so today, um, Amy Koyama, who I think has one of the greatest titles I've ever come across, which is a multi-issue social justice worker, um, which I think is, is one that so many of us would probably be proud to bear. Um, she's also the director of the Intersex Initiative, and in fact, if I jump ahead, that is what she'll be talking to us on, on Friday, this Friday, May 11th, from 12.15 to 1.30 at the Center for Gender Studies. Um, that talk is titled Intersex at the Intersection of Queer Theory and Disability Theory. Today she'll be talking to us about transracial and international adoptions. Um, I want to call attention right now to this remarkable array of pamphlets, um, writings by um, Ms. Ko by Koyama, uh, Amy Koyama, and she's someone who writes prolifically and really provocatively in both Japanese and English. I think she's very distinctive in that way, too, the extent to which she is able to express complex and challenging positions in uh, both languages and the extent to which she's active, constantly active in engaging in debate and the accessibility of the way in which she writes. Um, in those ways. So I invite you afterwards to come look at these pamphlets and above all buy them. An extraordinary array of, of buttons as well. And my colleague Tomi which is also wearing a t-shirt designed by Emmy <laughs> when the Minister of Health and Welfare um, of Japan um, called women baby making machines. Well, there was Emmy promptly taking action in this fashion. So with that, I turn the microphone over to Amy, and let's, let's welcome Well, thank you very much. Um, can you hear me? Are you, are you guys OK in the back? OK, good, because there are some seats here in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Nora, and thank you, um, thank you, everybody, for bringing me down here. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I was really just like I, I had like 
this horrible, horrible chill last night, and I was just, you know, just totally freezing, even though with all the blanket on me. So like I, the heat up the room is so hot, and then later that night, just got extremely hot. <laughs> and, and, ah, the window doesn't open. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was horrible, but I'm. I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I was just sleeping until this morning and trying to get some energy to get up. But once I got outside, it actually felt better because he can see all the green and everything. I'm at the 36th floor now, so I can't see anything. The city lights are really nice, but you can't see the green and all that. So, so once I got out, I felt much better. So anyway, this picture, some of you may recognize, come from The Daily Show. And that's a segment I was going to show you before I do this. Okay, hold on. And the sound didn't work, so the sound will come out from here. And you might want to turn off the microphone because it's going to be loud and horrible. Thank <laughs> you. 
on one of these sexy new rides. What's happening? Okay. Oh, I see. Oh my God! It wasn't. Okay, hold on. I'm gonna turn off the sleeping. Okay, where is that? Where was the energy saver? Where is the energy saver? Right there. <laughs> All the Macus is out there. So what do I do? It's power adapter, right? It's connected, right? Okay. Oh, no, 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 So I just took this picture from that. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to talk about the uh, translation adoption and international adoption. When we talk about um, the translation adoption, we're obviously talking about the mostly the white people adapting the children of color because white children never get adapted to the parents of color. So, and when you talk about international adoption, again, we're again talking about 
uh, children from, uh, from uh, Korea and China and Asian and African countries and Latin American countries coming to the parents in the, the US and Europe mostly. So some of the difficulty we're talking about this issue um, is I, I've listed here the glorification of parental love that, you know, aside from the Hollywood, when, when it's Hollywood, it's okay to joke about it. But when it's not Hollywood, it's just like, you know, people adopting children, that there's so much focus on parental love. And that, in, in general, just, just, you know, between children and parents. And if you're adopting for somebody who is not even related to you, and that, you know, across racial boundaries, et cetera, that, you know, the much of the focus becomes, there's so much love there, and therefore it's difficult to, to critique what's going on. Some second part talks about neutral language, so that again, as I said, uh, we're, we're talking about the children of color, the people of color, uh, the family of color being um, breaking up, and then the white families adopting the children of color, and yet, because we talk about transracial adoption or international adoption, that, that really masks those uh, racial patterns. The third part, point is, I think this is really, um, really common, the failure to question the way things are. And to put it differently, that we disconnect between what, 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 we need, what needs to happen today, what needs to happen now, versus how it got there. So that, you know, often the, obviously children need people to take care of them. And that if we start from the understanding that the children are always going to be there who are displaced or who um, don't have their parents take care of them, then, you know, because of, because of the disproportionate number of um, children, or children of who need families versus disproportionate number of white people who have, who can, who have the economic resources to adapt could only lead to the answer that white people should adopt those children of color. And yet, the, that itself needs to be questioned, that how it got there, that why do we have all those children of color in the, in the foster system or in the, in the, in the, um, in a situation where they need, they need to be adopted versus why, why do we have all those um, disproportionate number of white people being able to adapt in the first place? So that, that, that part is, that, and that's really common in our thinking about the social issues. So we think about, you know, we think about, oh, the, you know, on September 11, the, 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 you know, the World Trade Center was attacked. Now what, what do we do? How can we hold those people accountable? And yet, you know, we often don't talk about like, how we got there. Or even today, that we, we talk about, um, the, well, we can't withdraw from Iraq because if we do that, then that means that there will be a massive civil war and it's going to be disastrous. And yet, you know, it needs to be questioned, like, how do we get there that, you, that we, you know, we have to be there in the first place? That, so that, that disconnect, like, obviously, you know, immediately leaving Iraq and just throwing everything out is probably not a good idea. And yet, that's, it's, the question shouldn't end there. So we need to, we need to talk about the how it got there in the first place. So, so I, and, and, and what I want to emphasize is I don't want to, to promote the idea that, that, um, that adoption shouldn't happen, that international transgender adoption is a bad thing, or that it's a good thing, but to provide some of the analysis so that we, have, we are clearer about uh, what we're talking about. The false alternatives, again, this is the 
idea that, that we take things for granted, that the things are, they are the way they are. The false alternative, so should we save those children and place them in white families, or should we just leave them to suffer on their own? And again, that's a, that's a, that's a realistic question because we live in a society where, where the communities of color are disproportionately poor and that the, the white families disproportionately have the resources to be able to help children. So because of that, that becomes a realistic question, and yet it's the question shouldn't end there. So, and next, issue, next point is the overemphasis on psychological development. And this is basically, a, there are researchers that question international and transnational adoption, and yet much of that, and almost all of that, question the, that deals with psycho psychosocial development. And, so that they will, they will question that, can somebody who is black and being raised by a white family have a healthy self-esteem? Can they have like, you know, is their identity development harmed by the fact that they are being raised among the white people? And that, that's an important, important issue, but again, that also doesn't, um, doesn't question the larger political and economic structures that resulted in certain ways so that and, and while this is a, this is a really important um, research area, that I want to um, move beyond that and to talk about the larger political picture. And last point is that among the people who are questioning this kind of que the practices, the, the international and domestic adoption are completely treated as separate issues. They're 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 usually discussed in a completely separate ways, and largely because the domestic transnational adoption issue is a black issue. And the international adoption issue is an Asian issue. Now that's not necessarily the case, because, you know, in, in reality, because there are a domestic adoption of other people of color, as well as white children, and also, and there are international adoption of the you know, African children, etc. So that, but 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 the way that it's been politicized in the past, focused on, you know, the international adoption war was was being politicized among Asian Americans. And the domestic transnational adoption has been, um, and especially around the, um, the Black Social Workers Association and things like that, that mostly among the, among the black communities, as well as the Native American communities when the, um, the Indian Child Welfare Act is not really followed, so that there's lots of uh, destruction of the Native American families and communities, so that, that's also an issue. But the fact is that those are treated as two separate um, problems, two separate social issues. And that when we do that, we really fail to see the kind of, kind of similar patterns that happens in both international and, and domestic translational adaptions. So those are some of the issues that I want to address. International adaptions, now, and, and even though I talk about that, and because I come from Asian, American background that I, my focus is actually international adoption because that's all I know more about. Although I try to get more domestic and, and deals with, the, with the, the, the domestic child welfare system and the welfare um, policies and how that impacts the people's community of color. International adoption, this is a flyer for the international adoption. It's Americans for African adoption actually. But it's how, how you, can, you can see that how the pictures themselves just really show. This is like a how before and after picture. This child became so much happier in America, and etc. I think the interesting part is here: low fees children escorted from Africa. So that means that you don't have to go to Africa to pick up the child, which 
many other countries will require you to go, like China, you have to go to China. But if you are disgusted and you don't want to go to Africa, you can still adapt. And they talk about like children tested for all the, all the diseases, so they are not directly bringing any disease. So, and this whole, whole like pattern of your family is needed, and but Africa is crying. <laughs> So, it, so many African angels, which is why I created the um, chipbabies.com has an African angel section. I don't know if you saw that. International adoption, it's, it's popular because it's easy to find younger children. Now, domestically speaking, there are about equal number of people, children in the, in the, in the, in the circumstances where that could be, they could be adopted versus um, the people, families that want to adapt. So there's about one-to-one -one ratio. So if, if everybody who wanted to adapt, won't just simply adapt it, you know, much of that, that population would be adapted and they won't have to be in the foster system or the, you know, in the orphanage and things like that. And yet that doesn't happen because the, there's so much preference, of, especially around age and disability, that Children, domestically speaking, the children above like three year old and above five would be very difficult to be adapted. So that even though domestically speaking, like there are lots of children, the number of children that need to be adapted versus the number of people who want to adapt are about the same. There's huge backlog, backlog of people who want to adapt um, the basically the babies. Whereas internationally, it's easier to get babies and that there are depending on the state that there are some restrictions on like for example queer people adopted and things like that. Um, also in the state custody that, that there are lots of children with severe disabilities of course if they have like you know separation issues or if they were taken out because of some issues that you know that children may have different um, psychological or physical disability. So that makes it really difficult to you know, that makes it really difficult to adapt healthy infants. And if you're looking for healthy white infants, it's even further difficult. So, so that's why it's, it's international adoption is really popular. That as long as you have money, that you can buy a child. The three phases that, that I've identified, the, the initial beginning stage from Korea in the 1960s, and then the expansion of that in the 70s and 80s, and the China is basically the main, the huge factor that's been happening. The South Korea has been the largest country that exported the largest number of children since like the 50s. And yet, in the, I think in the mid-90s, the China actually came pop. So the first, this is a whole family. This is David, but that's wrong. It's, it's not David, I think it was his name. Henry or something. Sorry. No, Harry. Harry Holt. Harry. Okay. It's not David. Don't. If you're taking notes, it's Harry. And it's this guy. So this is a this is a um, fundamentalist Christian preacher that started the Holt International, which is the largest um, adoption agency in the world. That it both does both international and domestic. It also does some of the domestic in other countries, but. Um, they read in the newspaper that children, uh, the 
after the Korean War, all the children on the left who are basically the mixed race children. And we're, when, we, when I say mixed race, we're talking about the children of a Korean woman and the American soldier. And that, and that you know, many of those children were basically abandoned. Um, and oh, of course, the women are also abandoned when they are when they um, when they you know either that either they were um, you know either they were raped or if if they were um, in prostitution because of the economic circumstances or because you know they actually had a relationship with the with the American soldier and yet they were also abandoned when the when they left and and the soldiers came back to the U.S. and along with them the children were also abandoned there. And a huge number of them were left in the in the in the orphanage system, which was horrible at the time. It's not to say that it's not horrible today, but it was it was much worse to, at the time. That so so the the Holt family read that in newspaper and decided, okay, we can adopt a bunch of kids, as you can see, and we you know so they they just converted all of their fast like house. Like kitchen and everything, and put a bunch of beds in it, and uh, decided to, decided to adapt. And, and so they they wrote to the Congress, and had the law changed within like three months to allow that kind of international adoption. So that's really the beginning of the international adoption in the U.S. And this came from Eugene, Oregon. And I actually went to Eugene to go to their office uh, and have their paper and all that. They still require you to sign. A statement that says that you are Christian and you raise a child in Christian faith, in order to adopt, because that was a that was a part of the part of the adoption was that you know that those children are abandoned in Korea and that they are not being raised in Korea, in, in Christianity. So that so that to you know raise them under Christianity was the main goal for him. Okay, so initially, ninety nine percent of those those children were the Children of Korean women and American soldiers, so that and that many of them were adopted, um, many of them were abandoned because of the war and because the U.S. soldiers who fathered them had left. And uh, but since then, the Korean government has promoted adoption for both economic reasons and also because of the Cold War rationale, which is that, and there was like a common um, Cold War rationale for both the U.S. and the Korea that. South Korea wanted mm -hmm. to make sure that the U.S. would commit to defending South Korea against North Korea and China, mm -hmm. and that you know the the U.S. wanted to make sure that the, they have the Korea as a as a Korean basis and as a way to to um, confront them, so confront North Korea, China, and Soviet Union. So that the because of Cold War rationale that combined with the economic rationale that the South Korea could not afford to take care of its children. At the time, of course, like they they have just been recently, uh, recently liberated from the Japanese occupation, and that they've just fought the major war. So, so because of that, that has gone on. Now, some people may, some people have told have said that, well, but that makes sense for the fifties and nineteen fifties Korean government where they didn't have very much choice because, you know, first of all, they were, you know, they. So all of the, their infrastructure were destroyed through the war, so that, that they weren't much choice. And yet, the children from Korea kept the the South Korea kept imp exporting children, you know, between the 50s and toward I think the late 80s, 
still like in the, in the 80s, the Korean, the Korea has sent out about about like 8,000 children a year. So, and uh, that cannot all be explained by, of course, by the Korean War. That, you know, it can be explained in the 50s, but in the 80s, it cannot. And what happened was that the Korean adoption shifted from the, the children who were left behind by the war to the children with unwanted mothers and, and, mother and parents, the children with unwanted pregnancies. So that, and part of that, of course, has to do with, with the cultural issues, that there's cultural preference for the children who are, um, who are you know, associated with blood, that there's so much cultural preference for the, and against the children who have disability and all that. And that, that does have a role in, in producing this, like a large number of children being exported. And yet that cannot explain it all, all by itself, that because, because the infrastructure for exporting children was, was set there because of the war. Now, also in the 70s, 80s, the, the, Korean, the makeup of the Korean children who are being exported has changed. At the same time, that the children from the other countries have also been, been um, sent, to, sent to the U.S. and other, other countries. Now, I say U.S. because U.S. is the largest importer of, of the foreign children. But actually, if you look at the per capita, it's the Sweden that has imported more children. And that's really interesting to see because Sweden tends to be the country that is like way ahead on every human rights thing compared to the U.S., but they actually accept more children of, from other countries than, than the U.S. when you look at the per capita, even though there are like international treaties that really says that international adoption is basically a bad idea. Now, expansion to other countries. Vietnam, Cambodia are the main, and uh, are also the Place that because of the U.S. You know, because the U.S. led war, and of the, between the you know since South Vietnam and that and that actually the adoption business really um, spread out in the South Vietnam when children are being orphaned and otherwise that they are sent to the U.S. When the when the and also in the eighties the. And the Latin America is also where the U.S. has sponsored some of civil wars, and some of the you know military uh, governments in in South in South America. So that, but one of the really interesting uh, thing is that let's see, this is pictures from Operation Baby Lift. Operation Baby Lift. It's it seems it sounds like a joke, but it's actual operation, and this is this happened in when. When the when the Saigon was finally falling under the attack from the North, North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong attacks, that this is where the U.S. forces has almost all left, and the, some of the leaders from South Vietnam has also left, and that or are leaving, and this is a time where you know the North Vietnam was basically the North Vietnamese military was just was just surrounding Saigon, and that they were about to. The civil war, the war was about to end in Vietnam, and yet, the, because of the, there were all those children who have also already been assigned to the adoptive families, or there were there were marked shipped to to the U.S. That so they filled many airplanes that the the U.S. government chartered, 
and uh, basically put a bunch of children, like hundreds of children in the airplane, um, in many airplanes, and to, to ship them out of the South Vietnam before the South Vietnamese government collapsed. And so as you can see, there are this, all those children, they of course had some adults to supervise, but it's mostly children like this. That. So this is like how few adults there are. <laughs> so and and the and the thing that happened was that because this was like under when when the U.S. forces have complete have almost completely left and that some of the some of the Vietnamese South Vietnamese officials were also um, fleeing from the country that that some some of those airplanes have been shot by the North Vietnamese military thinking that's the U.S. military that's trying to leave. That. So it, it was attacked and, and all those children, hundreds of children were killed. And so that's the, that's the historical pictures from the Operation Baby Lift. Now, for, since 1990s, uh, much of it ha has changed, especially around Korea. The Hague Convention is an international treaty that is designed to protect children in adoption, uh, in, in international adoption and other adoption. That international and it states that international adoption must be at the, the rest, last resort. What does that mean? Is that it doesn't actually ban international adoption, but that it should be limited to the the circumstance where it's emergency. And emergency generally would mean that um, that because of the civil war or natural disaster or you know some public crisis that, you know, that there are like extreme number of children who are suddenly displaced and that they need to be adapted. So it allows for that, that kind of adoption and yet that it should not be just a routine matter to, to adopt children under this, uh, this international treaty. The nation responsible for trafficking, abduction, etc., where nations were, um, were held accountable to to um, stopping the, some of the trafficking and abductions. Abduction w was, was common in some of the countries that it was so common at one point that um, the Cambodia had to ban abduction for a while because um, there was so much abduction. And uh, Honduras also had to stop for a while. And today it, it looks like Guatemala will actually it'll be, like I don't know if it actually happened yet or not, but Guatemala is like, is, uh, has become the second largest um, exporter of children in the, in the last few years, and it's it's said that about you know about the one percent of newborn were exported last year or something in Guatemala, and that so much of the the, the so much of that was actually you know there there was serious problem of the, of of um, trafficking. Basically, in Guatemala, any lawyer could function as a adoption agency and that they could send children to other countries as long as if you're a lawyer. And so there are lots of, um, lots of sales of children there that parents, uh, parents who are really poor were just given just a few bucks basically to give up their children so that they can be sent to the U.S. for lots of money. So that became a major problem in Guatemala and it looks like a Guatemala will have to, have, like a U.S. will basically um, ban adoption from Guatemala for a while because of that. 
But a similar problem has happened in Cambodia and Honduras that they had to stop an international adoption for a while. At the end of the Cold War um, and the, the beginning of this new war rationale of the you know war against terror or and what they actually mean is that you know war against Islam is basically what they mean that there is so much um, interest in trying to you know instead of instead of this like Cold War rationale where we need to strengthen the you know, relationship between different countries but now it's more forefront that instead of instead of saying that that you know we should have those Korean children and to strengthen the relationship with South Korea but the more rational in um, when we should adopt all those children from Muslim families and raise them as, as Christians before they become terrorists. So that's actually like a, a kind of rationale that's not, that's not spoken that way, but there's much of that really happening. So the Cold War, end of Cold War meant that there were children from the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe who are being sent to, U sent to the U.S. Russia is the third country, I think the third largest country, and Bulgaria is somewhere like sixth or seventh or something like that. So there are some countries that are exporting. Ukraine is another, another country that uh, sends lots of children to the U.S. China becomes number one and displaces Korea. The, because of the international uh, convention, the Hague Convention, and because the, of the 1988 Olympic Games in in South, uh, South South Korea, that when when the when when the, they were preparing for the Olympic Games in 1988, um, some of the Western um, newspapers have criticized South Korea as a, as a country that violates children's civil rights by by this massive industry of exportation of children, and that because partly because of that, and partly because. Um, of the, this Hague Convention that um, there has been um, um, that the, the international adoption has become more controversial in Korea and that since since 90s that they've actually encouraged to encourage Korean people who are adopted overseas to return to Korea and, and of course there has been like lots of prejudice against those people but now they, the South Korea is actually becoming more supportive of people who are returning now which again is obviously is difficult because people are being raised without speaking Korean language. They don't, you know, they don't eat Korean food. They don't, you know, they're raised in completely in a Western way. But, but, um, but there has been lots of change. And South Korea still sends out lots of children, but not as much as it used to be. That South Korea has sent out like eight thousand children a year at, the, at one point, and yet today it's it's much much lower. So, the latest trends in the international international adoption, the Child Citizenship Act of 2000 is an interesting law that it went into effect fully in 2002 after 9/11, in which grants automatic citizenship for children who were adopted from foreign countries. So that in the past, when children were adopted, once they are adopted, they are given some visa, and that after that, they had to apply for citizenship and to do that. And yet this allows for automatic citizenship. As long as you meet certain criteria, that children are granted citizenship automatically when they enter the US. And the question is that how often does the, does the immigration law change to grant automatic citizenship to anybody? Is, you know, but it happened because the people who, 
parents who adapt tend to be the ones who are really rich and that they have lots of um, they have influence in, in the government uh, the opposition listen to them that so that that they've they've actually changed those laws to accommodate the needs of people who are adapting all the while all the other kind of immigrants all the other kind of immigrants who are facing like more more and more difficulty entering the US and you know difficulty obtaining visa dif difficulty obtaining citizenship so that's um that's a huge um, how you can see like how that's different from like how the other ways that people from other people who are born in other countries are treated that versus the children who are being adopted by the internet by the families in the US the tsunami the tidal wave in south and southeast asia was a major issue um, some of the places that were affected were for example indonesia the you know, Aceh area of the indonesia is is like Indonesia is predominantly a Muslim country, and because of that, there has been campaign after the after the tsunami um, damages to quickly adapt all those children to U.S. so that they can be raised by the Christian families. And it was actually encouraged that you know, for example, Aceh is it's a it's a semi-autonomous region within Indonesia, and that Western organizations can't operate there, but because of that because of the tsunami, it's a natural disaster. That they loosen some of the some of the laws, that so that Western rescue organizations can get in and give food and everything. That in using that, exploiting that that natural disaster, basically, some of the organizations, some of the Christian organizations, would try to um, get in and to uh, to find children who. Who were like from, you know, the Muslim family, who were from Muslim families, to be adopted by the Christians in the West, and uh, it was really promoted by this. Um, both the you know obviously they were trying to help children, but also the focus was to create a foothold and for the Christian, and spreading Christianity in Indonesia and especially in Aceh, Aceh where the where there was lots of restriction for the Western organizations to operate. Now that was that didn't happen because there was massive criticism toward it, and partly because when when there was like a the natural disaster like tsunami, lots of families were displaced, but they were not necessarily dead. So even though there were children who um, who were separate from their families, and yet we didn't know that that those children actually lost the families. So you know it just took some time to connect them back again. And because of that, the the, um, the criticism was that that you know you can't just adopt children before you know that the child child is orphaned or something. <laughs> that you know just because the the natural disaster had had um, separated them doesn't mean that they lost parents. So now, last point is that um, the Department of State has posted a document on the website that that responds to the requests from American families. Um, demanding Iraqi children, that there were lots of requests to the de Department of State, um, saying that um, I'd like to adopt children from Iraq, and I don't know why people do that. <laughs> I don't know why people um, request that. And obviously, what's you know, part of that ha part of that is motivated by the fact that you know that, of course, things were destroyed in Iraq, and and it's and and, uh, and life is so difficult and. And lots of people have died, so that must mean that lots of children are also displaced. 
and the, you know, the things may not be good for children in Iraq. But at the same time, it seems as if that because of our experience in Korea and Vietnam and Latin America, that we now see children as as like a, the world trophy that is something that we win. And obviously people are not actively thinking that way, but we're acting as if children are world trophy that demanding children from, from Iraq as, a, as because we beat them, saying that we want or something, mission accomplished, I guess. But, which by the way, the Iraq, the, they're not allowing Iraqi adoptions at this point, which I don't know why they would allow that because you know I don't think they have um, they have the, the large number of orphans compared to other countries or anything. But the but the fact that there was huge demand for Iraqi children, the people requesting Iraqi children, is is um, you know is is uh, is a really interesting thing. Some some of the factors, cultural social practices is often you often cited as the primary reason for international adoption. So people talk about, oh, the China, the you know, Chinese adoption is happens because because the you know because of the the policy of of allowing only one child per family and that and that there is strong preference for boys. So if the girls are born they are abandoned. And that's why there's international adoption. Oh in Korea that you know in, in Korea that because because uh, the children who were born out of out of the out of the marriage were considered complete, you know, were abandoned because of the Korean cultural issues. Now there may be there there may be a you know that that might also play part in it, but that alone doesn't explain it because you know what's happened. The the children from the U.S. are also stigmatized for being born out of wedlock, and then and yet they are not being sent to the other countries. So. <laughs> Now, so the second second factors comes in the vast economic disparity. That seems obvious that you know the adoption of the, you know international adoption happens from mostly from the poorer country to the U.S. Now, South Korea was an exception because it was it had developed economically, but it started out because in the fifties because of the the damage of the and the colonialism and, and the war. U.S. military involvement again—it's it's a pattern uh, that's ha that's been happening in the past. The Christianity has become you know that and the and the Cold War and post post 9/11 war in terror politics that there's the idea that we need to raise those children as Christians to save them and also to prevent them from becoming terrorists and it's just like. <laughs> Is is often the often the kind of motivation that um, some of the organizations have, that if you read their their literature carefully, uh, they 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 don't well they take for granted that it's for it's to save children, but they also talk about how we need to build like a stronger international um, the network for the Christianity and creating the foothold in, of Christianity in the Muslim countries, the predominantly Muslim countries, so that and they, they, they consider the international adoption as a part of it, that creating adoption agency, creating social service agencies to, you know, within the countries where, the, that's the, where um, it's predominantly Muslim. So I move on to domestic transracial adoptions. 
Now there's, there's this idea of traditional or minority adoption. Traditional adoption is non-black, and minority is black. And that may be really strange because Asian children are considered to be traditional and not minority, or Latino children or Native American children. That, and the, obviously the child welfare system has, you know, that you can go through the public adoption system, which doesn't cost money or it, may, it costs some money, but not, not the kind of the lots of money that it costs. But public adoption, uh, public welfare system, and public adoption system is, has like a huge number of children who are, who have the disability or, or the kind of disease, and the children who are older. Now, we don't have the, you know, we, they don't have the many like healthy white infants, which is like a, you know, small group of people, but small number of the children who are in the system are healthy white infants. So that it's difficult to go through that. Adoption agencies, you may have like a better chance of getting what you want, and yet the cost is really high. And traditional minority adoption is actually, um, it's presented as you know, traditional, and it's presented as white versus black, but the reality is non-black versus black. And that's really interesting in that, in that, in that like Asian children are basically grouped with the white children and all that. What they, what the Asians, what happened is, is that, is that the, ch the minority adoptions are cheaper. So that, you know, by, by like $5,000, it's cheaper than, than traditional adoptions. So that the black children are basically cheaper. And that there are less restrictions or restrictions, the requirements are, lower for the minority adoptions, which means that, for example, the adoption agency might have a policy about like <coughs> how large your house has to be per child. So if you already have this many children in, uh, in this amount of house space, the, the room is uh, like, there are this many rooms, and if you have this many children, you cannot adopt white children, but you can still adopt black children because black children obviously doesn't need as much space as white children do. Now, the, the claim that they make about this is that it's actually, um, they're trying to make adoption accessible to, to, the, to the black families, is the rationale for it, that by making it cheaper and by making the like, house size requirement and things like that much, much looser, that they're making adoption and adoption more accessible and easier for the black families so that to promote more black and black and adoption. And yet the only thing it does is really is that it devalues black children. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if you are treating them as, as, as require much less money and much less space, much less um, income on the parents' um, parents' side, that, you know, just uh, everything that the parents could be older than, than if it were, so th by having the less restriction. Now that again also happens for children with disabilities, that uh, you know, if you have the children with disabilities are much cheaper, sometimes they, they will even give you money and to raise the children with severe disabilities. And uh, so that, now the part of rationale could be that, well, because it, it costs lots of more money to raise children with disability. But at the same time, it really devalues the children based on the, their ability and their race. 
um, decline in welfare state. So, so since around the 70s, uh, the, there's a steady decline of the, the public support for keeping the families together. So that there's you know much less support. And that today, today the 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 majority of children of color who are being taken to the state custody are not abused, but they are, quote, neglected. And this construction of neglect, it's really interesting that construction of neglect actually, basically, historically speaking, started out as meaning like extreme exploitation. That, for example, making children work in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a coal mine or something. That, that was considered the neglect, the, the, you know, the prostituting your, ch your child or things like that would put the children at the severe danger was considered a neglect in the in the beginning. And yet today the neglect could mean that simply mean that economic insufficiency. So that you cannot provide enough food, enough you know, you can't provide the kind of medicine, you can't provide um, provide uh, the the time to to be with the child that you you know, if the, if the parents are working several shifts of work, then they cannot stay with the child and, and the child may be left at home. That's neglect. If the parents couldn't close the child, children properly, if the if the parents couldn't afford heat, so they were, you know, so that they were, um, so the house was like cold at winter, and that could be that could be considered neglect. So the neglect traditionally meant a severe exploitation, but today it means um, it means it could mean like obviously that still means neglect, but that today it could it could mean the parents simply not being able to provide economically something that that you know that we believe it should be provided and and yet we have less and less support the public financing support for the kind of kind of um, you know because those are the issues that if there was enough food if there was enough subsidy for energy if there were enough you know if there were enough you know um, public welfare support children wouldn't be, quote, neglected. And yet we're, we're withdrawing the money from that and then putting more and more money into, like, uh, the, there was a new adoption law in the 2002, I think. And the more money, money for finding foster families and compensating them, and also finding adoptive families and compensating them, and, you know, the finding part is, has cost lots of money. And also to provide um, lots of, lots of, um, Tax credit for people who adapt, so that so that instead of like you know funding funding the the, the services that would help the families stay together, we're now like funding the tax credit, which is like thousands of thousands of dollars for for the upper middle class and upper class people to adapt. So that and that really happened because. There was a change in view of you know the we as a society has changed what we how we how we see those neglect and economic insufficiencies that traditionally it was considered that that you know unfortunate circumstances, but today like we we have the legal structures that sees those economic insufficiency as a personal flaws and the the parents there's something wrong with those parents, and so. The, rather than the, rather than providing support so that the families can stay together, they will um, that they will take the child away from these families and then 
and then the, the give tax credit to people who are who are wealthy enough to adapt. Now, tax credit sounds like you know it's not it's it's not it's it's like a less than giving money, but tax credit is still government money being spent. Some of the some of the new trends of oh, the two thousand three the tax incentive for upper middle families to adapt took place in two thousand three. But another thing that happens with the, um, with this is that the Multi-Ethnic Displacement Act was a part of the Child Adoption Promotion Act, and that basically um, prohibits use of race as a factor in adoption if they receive public financing. So that adoption agencies, will, um, or that they will, they will prohibit that the, the you know policies to try to adapt the families and the children of color into their own race, basically, but to uh, make it more, more um, the colorblind in, in terms of adapting children into different families. Now, second point is this is really a severe problem. The federal bonuses, there are federal government bonuses to different states that promote adoption so that state, so that if the state has this child that mm, that a family that may may need support but if the state pays for something to help the families stay together then state doesn't get any money but if the state takes the child away and and have the child adopted to other family then the the state actually receives money from federal government so there's like, like a strange incentive set for for the for the state it's in a more state of interest to, to take more children out and uh, have them adapted rather than, help, other than provide, rather than providing some public support so that the families of color can keep their children in their family. Now, the last part is anti-abortion movement. The, the, as I said in the beginning, that because there's about equal number of people who are, uh, equal number of children who could be adapted versus the parents, the families that want to adapt, but because of the age gap, that it's really age gap, and because of the preference around disability and race, that it's very difficult. That even though there are equal numbers, but there's long wait lists for people who want to adopt healthy white <coughs> infants. So how can we increase the supply of healthy white infants? Well, if we ban abortion in white for, among white communities, that would do. So this. Anti-abortion movement has like actively participated in promoting adoption and, and that using adoption as a reason that for <coughs> that because or that using adoption as an alternative to 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 abortion and then and, and what they aim for is that um, today many of the children are in in the in the adaptable circumstances who are too old to be adopted. But if we can provide, if we can make adoption an alternative to abortion, then we get like a lots of a huge supply of children who are like basically infants, and much, many of them really healthy, healthy infants who are, you know, whether they're white or not, but still like healthy infants. So, so that because they're in 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 a, in a heavy demand, that they're seeing abortion, the anti-abortion movement is seeing that. That, that that's the way they will fit in. That the um, prohibiting abortion or making it unavailable to people as a way to to increase supply of children, healthy healthy children into 
the adaption market. What's wrong with this picture? About this picture? <laughs> Did you see this at the beginning? So there, there's, a, there's a today's specials. Healthy white infants, if you click on healthy white infants, it's always out of stock. Like, and the domestic ethnic, oriental imports, and this is the oriental imports part. And uh, African, African angels, South American treasures, and Canadian. And underneath there are the bestsellers, bargain babies, alternative families, shop by age, used and refurbished, and slightly imperfect. I, I just I just made this up. <laughs> Obviously this is not real, but it's 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 scary enough it's almost real. <laughs> There's no website that, that tells children like this. Yeah. It this is not real. So <laughs> And I, I've actually, there's actually, um, there's actually, um, on on eBay, you can't sell children on eBay, right? Because it's a human body, and eBay prohibits that. But there are lots of, if you search for um, for adoption in eBay, there are lots of like uh, auctions for fundraising for adoption. So that we're adopting our fifth Korean baby, and and. And for that, for that, I, I'm trying to get money for that by selling this um, recipe of Korean food <laughs> and things like that. You see lots of that, and, and you can that's almost like you you can try trying to buy children on eBay. Although they are not buying children on eBay, but they are raising money to buy children on eBay. But anyway, it's crazy. But so. So psychodevelopmental psycho concerns, like psychosocial issues, identity development, confusion, isolation, and, and obviously if you're raised in, in the middle of Iowa, and uh, you know, if, you, if you're a children of color in, in a white family in the middle of Iowa, that, you know, I have nothing against Iowa, by the way. I'm from Missouri. <laughs> I'm from Missouri, and I say that to prove it. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, so there's lots of issues around isolation. The people, you know, children, children um, being raised as white, so that that they try to adapt to that kind of white identity, and that not quite working. So that's a that's a often an issue. Attachment issues, of course, any kind of adoption involves attachment issues, but especially so if you don't have people around you who look like you at all. And abusive exploitation. Well, the, before that, parents felt in cultural exposure, so that so lots of parents feel that they need to expose children to the culture of their child, but their parents are often ignorant about the say, culture, so that they have a Chinese children and they take them to like some Japanese something, to, <laughs> thinking that's like exposing to their culture, or that they just you know accept some of the caricature of the the culture for the child, you know that. That is really um, scary. I go to import important way I live. I go to um, I go to the, the the taiko performance. You know they have the this really acrobatic taiko performance. There's important taiko, um, which is they their their stuff is really great. But I see so many children like Asian children with their white parents, and I don't know like it's 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 
I'm, 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 I mean, it's, it's obviously better than people who are just not, who are not even concerned about exposing children to their culture. And yet, because the parents end up filtering it, and that, that, that really um, creates a different dynamic in it. And that, and obviously the, you know, majority of parents, families, and people here would not know that much about the culture, the Korean culture, Chinese culture. Uh, they end up like, providing this kind of caricature of that culture.